Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. With me today is Natalie Douglas, an award-winning healthcare entrepreneur, CEO, and investor. Natalie has spent most of her career in the healthcare sector, starting in the pharmaceutical industry at Johnson & Johnson. As an entrepreneur, she built a global healthcare services business and in 2020 co-founded rare disease specialist health technology company, Rarity. As founder of Lucidity, Natalie invests in healthcare technology businesses fueled by passionate leaders and provides strategic counsel to fellow CEOs and their boards of directors. Natalie is also a board director of US-based Seek Women's Health and a strategic advisor at Draper & Dash. Natalie, thanks so much for being with me today. How are you? And as we always kick off with in series one, how on earth has the last 12 months been for you? <laughs> Hi, Peter. Great to speak to you today. Um, thanks for the opportunity. Gosh, that's a great question to start with, isn't it? How's the last 12 months been for me? Well, it's been a really interesting phase in my life, both personally and professionally. Uh, I'd call it a game of two halves. Um, probably that, you know, you can relate to that as most people will. I think it's been really challenging. Um, but at the same time, I've also seen and felt a great deal of optimism as I think this gives us as humans a real opportunity to reset um, the way we want to live our lives, how we contribute to our lives, how much time we want to spend with our family. You know, so I think it's been, as I say, a game of two halves. You know, some of it's been super challenging um, and frustrating and some of it's been, you know, really refreshing and actually quite um, rewarding, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It's been really great having conversations with so many different leaders across the life sciences and technology and communications industries, because actually that's been a very, very common theme in, in, in this first series. It's been about a case of, wow, something sizable has happened. What do we want this to look like and what changes are we going to make? So by the end of this, we're actually better set than we were before. And I think that's been a really refreshing, very energizing common theme that's been um, that, that's been throughout the conversation. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're also uh, coming at it from that angle, Natalie. I think in terms of context for the listeners, I think it's, it'll be great to go back to talk about early decisions and thought processes because some of the companies that you've founded, some of the companies you've been a part of have been doing some really interesting, really interesting work in some really interesting areas. So if you wouldn't mind, Natalie, for listeners, give a bit of context on how you've ended up where you are today. <laughs> well, we've got a few years to cover there, Peter, that's <laughs> for sure. Um, I guess, you know, my interest in healthcare is probably the most, the best place to start. You know, I started my career at Johnson & Johnson in their pharmaceutical division in a role that uh, it was a sales role. I mean, I was carrying the bag, as as most people in the industry understand. We carried the bag, which meant that we were selling drugs to doctors. And, um, you know, back in the 90s, this was a really prestigious uh, kind of role. It was a really important, um, you know, it's a big step for anybody coming out of college or university and looking around uh, to find, you know, a career path. And so going into big organizations like J&J is really where the focus was for people like me at that time. You know, we compare it to where I think a lot of 
younger people are today. You know, entrepreneurialism is is so um, ingrained, if you like, in society today um, that perhaps entering the sort of corporate world is maybe um, one of the choices you can make. But but when I was you know growing up, getting into a big corporate was really the desirable route and the starting point for a career. Uh, and I have to say, I don't regret that at all because I happened to join an amazing uh, organization. Johnson & Johnson are amazing from all sorts of angles, but for twofold reasons for me. One is it was a great starting point, not just in my career in a corporate, but it was a great starting point in healthcare. Um, and they looked after their people as well. So it was a great training ground. I've never worked anywhere else and I've never been involved in any organization that has invested so much in its people. Um, but the, the critical element for me is I learned a lot. It was a pretty tough job as well in many respects. I'd never really done anything like it before. And there were lots of obstacles I had to overcome as well in this industry. I was not a biochemistry graduate like most of the other uh, reps, most of the other uh, people I was training with, and most of the people I worked with, the majority of people within that company were science graduates. I was not. I was a business and marketing graduate. And I have to say, during the interview process, you know, I was asked a bunch of questions. Some of them, obviously, I must have answered really well because they employed me. But some of those questions were quite difficult for me because I didn't come from that sort of science um, background. So something must have stood out for them to take a chance on me. Um, and for me, I always felt that I had to prove myself. And I think these are some elements that, you know, have really um, served me well over the years and as I've progressed in my career as well. But it was a great training ground. I had a lot of fun. I still have many friends um, from working in that company. Uh, and um, it was a, a great opportunity that I grabbed with both hands. The, the turning point there, and which led to my entrepreneurial um, phase, I guess, I don't know if it's a phase, it's kind of where I've ended up, really. I kind of knew in some respects that I was never really that corporate track kind of person. I always needed something a little bit different. I had a curiosity um, and I ended up in this area at J&J that um, exposed me to patients directly. I mean, most of the time when you're selling drugs to doctors, you are not um, talking to patients. This is back in the 90s. I was working the London teaching hospitals. You know, I'd moved from being a GP rep quite rapidly into a specialist hospital sales rep, which was um, which was so much more interesting. I have to say, I was dealing with some really intricate areas of medicine, and actually, this was in at the time when HIV was still a major, um, you know, significant infectious disease with no cure. Um, and I ended up working in London teaching hospitals and I was working on a, a therapy um, that was treating patients with HIV. It was really to treat um, sort of opportunistic infection. It wasn't going to cure them and it didn't treat the underlying condition. But some of these patients had really, really terrible um, um, side effects from from their disease. And so my the drug that I was promoting, if you like, um, was to treat some of these uh, opportunistic infections. Long story short, I got exposed to uh, medicine in a way that then 
took me on a, a very different journey into an entre- entrepreneurial route. What I realized is that patients sometimes needed access to therapies that were still in clinical development. Um, and I think COVID would be a good example today, actually, of where you you can see where a drug might not be available, but there is nothing else available. And we have to either accelerate the development of that therapy or we have to try things that haven't yet really been trialed. But we're in a real life situation. It was the most incredible experience. I was dealing with patients, not, let me be clear, I wasn't selling to patients, but the difference here is this was investigative medicine. The doctors were pretty young and doing really innovative things. And it was just such a great experience. But if you were going to see the doctor, you would invariably bump into the patients who were the most well-informed about what was going on with their disease state. They knew every therapy that was in development. They knew every drug company. And they would talk to you. And it, they were, the point is they were really, really informed. So anyway, my journey at um, J&J was a fantastic one. Um, I, I became not frustrated with the, the territory, but a sort of a fortuitous situation occurred um, where I got the opportunity to work overseas. Um, I took that opportunity. Uh, I it came back into the industry a few years later having had exposure to a different industry, but a much more international um, environment. And I got introduced to a tiny company that was uh, managing, it was actually sourcing and supplying medicines for individual patients. The company was called IDIS. And I went into the business, uh, it was tiny, and met the original founders who said, well, we're just looking for a marketing manager. We we don't really, you know, we don't really think the business is going to grow that much, but, you know, that's what we want. Um, I walked in there. I could absolutely see what this business could become. And based on my experience at J&J, I set about building this company. What I said is this company needs to do three different things. We really need to take this model out to the industry. And that's what I created. So out of the sort of starting point of that business, I created, uh, eventually it became the global market leader in um, what's called managed access programs. Um, These programs enabled pharmaceutical companies to provide ethical access to therapies that were still in development and not commercially available. So it was really based out of my experience at J&J, some of my international experience actually working in Canada for a couple of years, and then coming back and seeing the sort of kernel of this uh, idea in IDIS and then building that business into you know, global dominance, I guess, um, bringing private equity into that model as well, taking this model out to banks and investors and explaining the model, telling them what we were doing, where we were going, and bringing private equity and and, and bank um, support into that model as well was something that I I did. All of these times were, you know, actually, as we're talking about it, there's so many elements of this, but it was a huge learn curve for me, Peter. I loved every minute of it. Um, It was such a huge uh, achievement, actually growing the business, taking the business into over 200 different countries, setting up the operation in America. You know, we were working with the top 20 pharmaceutical companies. Um, and the standing start was going to talk to these companies and saying, this is what we do. Um, 
you know, we can help you. And a lot of those companies were really reticent. Oh, is this legal? Um, I'm not sure I understand what this is. So it was a real standing start, having to educate an industry. Um, and I think the credibility I had was based on my background at J&J and in those corporates. But the entrepreneurial, this is when the entrepreneur in me, I knew I couldn't stay in corporate. I knew I had to drive and make a difference and do something really different. And that's what I did with building that that market-leading company. You know, the, the business was eventually sold. Heartbreaking for me, I have to say, because I don't think I ever would have, uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't my choice to do that. But that's the nature of, of the investment side of it, right? There's, you can't always, as entrepreneurs, and I'm sure you, you know, some of your uh, listeners will recognize this, you know, it, it, there are phases you go through as you grow your business. And when you need investment and you need support, you know, the dynamic can change. Um, but I look back on that business today and I think what a great business it was. People tell me all the time it was a fantastic business. Um, I miss it every day. But, you know, I've gone on and done other really interesting things. Was there was was there early years signs of this entrepreneurialism? Is it does it run in the family? Were you creating lemonade stands from a young age, Natalie? Where where, where does all this come from? Well, uh, it's a good question. I mean, actually, I come from um, a family of I would call them sole traders, right? So my grandfather ran his own. My, both of my grandparents ran their own business. Um, uh, most of my cousins run their own business but they were all pretty small companies no you know some you know distant relatives were in corporate you know one of my uncles worked for Rothschilds banking so you know but my immediate family um all sole traders and so I wasn't exposed to corporate life at all growing up I saw grafters um self-sufficiency independence. And I think those are, you know, those are inherent sort of genetic traits in me, which I think is, uh, you know, in part, if not all, explains why an entrepreneurial route has been um, what I've pursued and what I've enjoyed the most. Fast, fast forwarding to current position again. So like you've, yeah. you've done, you've done the big corporate, you've done the startup, which has gone through and, and, and sold for a, and become a, a global player. Now you're an investor, but also very, by the sounds of it, very much hands on um, with, with, with one of your businesses at the moment and obviously have, have needed to be especially so over the last 12 months. Can you just maybe give us a little bit of what your, uh, what's taking your time up at the moment and where things are with Rarity and your, and your role in that? <laughs> well, Rarity was co-founded uh, in the back end of 2019, and we officially launched in January 2020. And that's when you know website goes up. We start talking to to clients, um, and of course, only a few weeks later did we sort of screech to a halt because of the pandemic. Um, and I have to say, of course, you know, in all my experience and all my years in business, uh, one of my mantras is, what's the worst that can happen? I always think about that. Um, I pretty much think about that all the time because I like to be prepared for every eventuality. But I have to tell you that nothing prepared me for um, the ensuing, you know, 12 months of trying to build 
a business in a pandemic, certainly from March through to probably August, it was really heavy going. Uh, I think, and I'm sure lots of people will relate to this. Um, So specifically with Rarity, we um, had to make some key decisions. So for example, we'd made an offer to um, hire a CEO. We'd made that, that was really important to both of us, my co-founder and I, Um, and co-founding the business is really important, was important for me. I didn't want to be the CEO. It was absolutely an imperative because there are good reasons for that. But um, so we'd made an offer to the CEO and we just thought about cash flow. Um, we had two key clients at that time. Uh, both of those clients, you know, slowed down, just started to slow down. We were due to make some, you know, some, you know, basically get going with two key projects and the clients slowed down. Um, uh, we had to make decision about hiring, you know, what do we do here? Because there's an expense. We made the decision to hire the CEO, because we thought that was the most important thing. And it absolutely was the right thing to do. But of course, we were flying by the seat of our pants at this stage because we, you know, and we were building a technology platform, right? So that was another big investment. Um, and, and our sort of financial thesis was based on us bringing in some uh, revenue as well as, you know, in, investing, putting our own cash in. And so we had to rework that model. We had to reforecast that model, knowing that actually not knowing what was going to happen. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, mm. I'm sure there are many uh, listeners in this situation, but actually I think what's, what was interesting about this was not actually knowing what was going to happen. It was a bit like having, um, you know, a blanket thrown over my head um, and having to make decisions in, in this kind of vacuum. Um, and it was very difficult, obviously, as everybody knows, to predict what was going to happen next. You know, we were in a lockdown situation. And the other thing that had happened is I'd got stranded with my family in Europe. You know, we live in America. Um, we were on spring break when the lockdown, the official lockdown occurred. And we ended up, so we were in sort of a temporary living situation, uh, having to work. My son was having to school. Um, and it's not like London is unfamiliar to me by any means. But, you know, everything was up in the air was the point. And and it was tough at the beginning. And actually, the whole year, I would say, has been unpredictable, um, definitely frustrating and tougher than we'd anticipated when we started out. And, you know, when you've been in business a long time, you've dealt with all kinds of challenges. Um, uh, you know, back to my what's the worst that can happen. You know, there's a multitude of things, as we all know, in business that can happen and things that you you need to prepare, prepare for even knowing that it's probably not going to happen. But this was an unprecedented situation. And I guess, you know, the big learns were you can't, uh, and we have to take forward, you know, you can't always predict what's going to happen in the future. You can only make decisions based on what you know today. Um, you can only, perhaps you, you need to think very short term. Um and, and this could be on a daily basis as opposed to a you know, weekly basis or even a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually made a significant amount of headway during uh, the year. In fact, we, we completed our technology platform uh, a few months ahead of schedule because we weren't distracted with other things, you know, running a lot of projects for clients. We did 
um, secure some other clients as well. And actually, um, the other thing that was so uh, important, I think, was keeping our brand uh, presence alive and visible, you know, being a new brand in the market during a global pandemic, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit back and decide to, you know, you know, pull the flag down or are we going to keep waving the flag regardless of what's going on in the industry? And that's what we decided to do. You know, brand recognition was the one thing we, we needed to build, pandemic or not, right? Knowing that when people are ready to start, when they start looking again, um, they need to know that rarity is there and they needed to know what rarity stood for. And actually, you know, we, we've got really good feedback on our presence, visibility. People have been very interested in what we're doing. We've had lots of dialogue with, um, you know, potential clients and other parties actually looking for partnerships um, to, to, you know, think we've done things that we probably wouldn't have done as quickly because of the pandemic. We've, we've been, we've really been very creative in our thinking. Um, you know, we've had to pivot a little bit. We've learned a lot about the market, our competitors, because we've had time to do a lot of um, research and analysis, you know, stuff when, as you know, sometimes when you start a new business, you know, you get going and you're just all full steam ahead. And actually, we've been able to sort of look around, look behind us, stop a little bit, regroup. Now, I'm, I'm giving you all the sort of the rosy side of it, right? There's also the, the side for me that was really frustrating. You know, I am not someone that can sit behind a desk all day, right? So Zoom, Zoom every day, all day. Um, not my style at all. I'm just, you know, I'm much more, uh, I'm just not used to sitting behind a desk. And I found that to be extraordinarily frustrating. Um, but again, I would get into my routine of being physically active so that, uh, you know, work out in the morning or, or later in the day, you know, to, to sort of counteract and counterbalance this sort of physical um, frustration if you like. I'm also, you know, I, I bounce off other people and um, being sociable is part and parcel, I think, of leadership. You know, how do you build and lead a team when you can't see one another or you don't have those, as the Americans say, the water cooler moments? So, you know, it's... It, yeah. it's, it's um, what, what, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, um, was whether or not you have to make any significant changes to the business plan or its vision. When all this was kicking off in March last year and all, everything was all of a sudden, well, we're going into lockdown. I, I've spoken to a, a few founders that have had to change the way that they did their business. Was there anything significant that had to happen there, Natalie, or was it, or were you able, were you in space that allowed you to carry on with its original purpose? I think it's a great question. And I think that the fact that we were a startup. Um, <laughs> I mean, our business is as bad as, as, as long as the pandemic, right? Um, so I think to some extent, we, we were fortunate that, you know, the original intent of our model was so fresh that we didn't really have to make any significant change or pivot. Our, the decisions we had to make really is where we're going to spend our money. Um, and maybe narrowing the focus of our product offering to focus on what was going to be most of interest to customers and where we were going to generate revenue. Um, and so, but it hasn't fundamentally changed 
what we're doing and where we've um, and, and it hasn't changed the original intention of the business. I mean, actually, it's been a good year to learn. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of response from the market now, and that's also helped us, I think, hone and focus on what's most important to them, where we're going to get the most traction. Um, I think it would have been quite easy for us if we, without the pandemic, we might have got a bit distracted with doing things that, you know, trying to do too much. What's been the steepest learning curve, aside from like the Zoom and the desk and like you mentioned already, but... Oh my goodness, that is such a great question. I think the biggest learn curve is is for us is thinking about how um, how we uh, how we engage with our clients in the future post pandemic because that has been the biggest challenge of all. You know, if you're trying to build your brand, you know, there's a lot of business development activity, for example, and thinking ahead you know which is a, a big part of uh, of what i do um is you know what is the world going to look like for us and we've seen significant challenges in this year you know our client base is the pharmaceutical industry um and getting in front of those people is always a challenge anyway but th- during the pandemic it's been especially difficult we've had to be very creative and we're going to continue to be creative but if you think of the normal route you would go or the not the normal the established route the well established route as a service provider to big corporations what is going to be or what is going to be the way forward because i don't think you know you can't just lift the veil on the pandemic and say oh it's over because i think behaviors have changed and i don't think and even if things gradually get back to the way they used to be i don't see that happening overnight i think we're definitely this year the ne- the rest of 2021 is still going to present challenges and we certainly see in the pharmaceutical industry there are huge challenges ahead because what they're focusing on is their existing business you know a lot of companies when they sell drugs to doctors you know they haven't been able to get in front of doctors or they haven't been able to um, deliver on clinical trials in the way you know we saw a huge slowdown of of clinical trials most companies have been so focused on covid as well you know there's lots of disease um states rare of course cancer there's going to be all sorts of challenge mental health i mean there's all sorts of issues this um pandemic will have created that will then start to put pressure on health systems not just the drug industry but my point is i think the biggest challenge of the pandemic is is almost yet to come because because you know invariably things will not be the same we've had to you know keep the the fire going in the last 12 months but actually it's more about what are we going to do in the next 12 to 24 months those traditional routes you know i i can't see that they're necessarily going to come back i think that we're going to see a hybrid situation and therefore we have to think about and we have to change the way and our uh, the way we operate i definitely think if you've got if the client's engaged and there's a an an immediate need zooming instead of meeting face to face i think is great what i would also say though is i think that hybrid is i don't think technology is is a panacea um and i actually you know this is talking to other people as well i mean i definitely think that we're going to see people either hybrid working from home or some some roles will be permanently based at home i don't think that's necessarily a good thing it's not great for team building 
Um, also, in the bigger the corporate as well, the more difficult it is for you to engage and build relationships with people that depend on you. And I, I genuinely don't feel that that's going to be good for humanity, if that makes any sense, right? You know, we are social animals in many respects. I certainly think that it does enable us to be more efficient you know think about it how often were we flying around to meetings how much time did we actually spend sitting in an airport lounge on an airplane you know all that stuff it's like god why did we do that so i definitely see um that technology is going to enhance that we're also going to see it in healthcare delivery of course you know there's a big conversation about the need to you know telemedicine been a huge driver of patients getting access to some level of care over the last 12 months. Well, that process was was a process that many, you know, clinicians, hospital systems, payers were totally opposed to until the pandemic. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. That's what we've seen here. And again, I think that's great because it will start to push and advance efficiencies in healthcare. And, and so it's exciting to think about what technology will do. But I do, I do worry about the implications of total dependence on technology moving forward. You can't deliver all healthcare. Uh, you can deliver some elements of it. But actually, it's the social element of work. You mentioned something about not returning to normal. And I think that is such an important point. There's such an enormous social impact here. This pandemic, you know, maybe we're the lucky ones, right? I really hope as humans, we don't just go back to the way things were before. I really hope that, especially when we're successful and we've got resources and, you know, we can um, make change happen. I think we have to be conscious of the fact that many, many people have been very badly affected by this pandemic. People who have been forced to work at home and look after their children and worry about elderly relatives, there's a lot of those people. And we need to look out for those people. And as employers, we have to be considerate of those factors and try to help people as best we can. Because again, this pandemic you know, the lockdown itself might be coming to an end in some places or maybe temporarily, right? But the ongoing impact for some of these families, it, it could go on for quite some time. What as a leader requires more regular attention or effort from you? Oh, God, that is a great question. I have to be instinctive about this. I'm not always the quickest person to say we did a great job you did a great job and to to acknowledge and reward the the wins because and that doesn't mean i'm a ruthless person you know if you asked anyone in my team i think they would probably argue with that point a little bit but being honest if i think about over my career you know and and entrepreneur you you will recognize this but other entrepreneurs as well the thing is once you've hit the you know, the milestone or you've achieved that objective, instead of focusing on achieving it, you, you've already, you can already see the next six objectives or the next milestone, right? So you're, you're, this is, this is con- my, my constant striving for the next, you know, getting further forward. I'm, I'm very forward thinking in that respect. And also when we do things well, I think this back to my IDIS days actually, and, and we, I, we did do some amazing rewards. So it's not that none of it's ever done, but I, I guess, you know, not 
not really making a big thing out of achieving, you know, the small wins and, and recognizing those at the time, because I was always like, we're, we're there. Could, and could we have, and, and recognizing, even though we got there, we could have done it better. That is a natural trait of mine. It's like, it's great. Actually, it's good. We've done it right. But we now, okay, we're here, but everybody over here, this is where we're going. You know, we're still, that's the goal. I know we're here, but it's, we're still going over there. And some people find that and keeping, you know, people can't, not everyone can keep up. Now, it's, it's certainly, you know, that can be very inspiring for people who are working for you, but it can also be quite frustrating for others. And so I would say for me that that's probably been a bit of a challenge over the years. No, no, I can, I can relate to it, Natalie. It's like, it's, yeah. when is, <laughs> where, 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 where's the point where you go, oh, that was really great. It's like, oh no, we've, Next, next, next. And I'll, I think Absolutely. it'd be quite a few people listening that would probably be nodding their heads. At, at yeah. What does great leadership look like? Sharing the vision, explaining the vision and how it's going to be achieved, simplifying complexity, transparency and honesty. Um, those are the things for me. And empathy, actually being human authentic is i guess you know the one word i'd use to combine all of those things in my career those are the things that people have said to me have stood out you know i did a massive i think you know this i did a massive turnaround of a multi billion dollar clinical home care business and i had to walk in there nobody knew who i was and deal with a really really you know a failing business and walking in and just being honest with everybody and standing alongside people and explaining, you're not going to leave them in the lurch. You're going to be there to support them. You know, that's all of those elements to me are authentic leadership. And that's worked for me. And I would say it's an effective way to lead an organization, whether it's a startup, whether it's a turnaround, you know, whether it's in dynamic growth phase. I think you know, I don't know how to be anything other than authentic. And there's a directness to that, that actually in many respects is refreshing in business. And sometimes is very, it's very difficult for some people to operate in that way. And it's off-putting in some respects because some companies don't have a culture of openness. I've, I've dealt with an awful lot of passive aggressiveness in my time directed at me, um, which is it's, it's counter to anything I stand for because I don't see the need for passive aggressive behavior. It's quite common in business. Um, and it's not a culture that I think is effective. Um, it's un that's more undermining than being honest and transparent with people. Now, if I, I can honestly say that people have said to me, Oh my God, no one's ever given me that feedback before. I mean, it's, it's obviously how you give the feedback as well. Or, you know, look, everyone, the business, We've got three months to save the business, right? This is what we're going to do. You know, that is better than not telling them anything, but them knowing that things aren't right. Um, and some people don't, can't handle the honesty. You know, I've had a couple of people work for me where I've said to them, look, you're not ready for that next step. These are the reasons why. Some people will just not agree with you and actually behave really badly in that situation, right? But I can only be an authentic leader. My job is to deliver results, make a difference and treat people well. A guy that worked for me once said to me, feedback is, a, I had to give him some tough love, right? And he just said, he just smiled and said, 
you know what, Natalie, feedback is a gift. And I have never forgotten that. This was from someone who worked for me. That was one of my biggest, you know, to learn for me um, with someone working for me. And I always remember that. And I think that helps you deliver that feedback to somebody. I can tell you some people don't want it. They don't agree with you. Thank you very much. Uh, Natalie, but you know, your opinion sucks and I'm not interested in your feedback. And, and, and now I work a lot with other entrepreneurs. I do a lot of coaching and mentoring. And, and I think that that, so I think my style resonates with more people than not. Is there any book, podcast or any other mm-hmm. learning methodology, Natalie, that has really stuck with you in recent months that you could share with the listeners? Well, I don't read business books, right? That's the one thing I don't do because I do business all the time. And um, it's not to say that I can't learn anything from these business books, but I just, in my doubt, I mean, I've just got this brain that thinks like work stuff all the time. So when I, um, my downtime is is spent reading completely different things. You know, I love interior design, so I'm always like reading magazines and that sort of stuff. I love reading the newspaper on the weekend. I get the the New York Times delivered um, because I love reading a good old fashioned newspaper. I read books that uh, where I feel like I need to learn about what's happened in the past. I'm reading this amazing book at the moment. Actually, I'm going to reach it. I'm going to show it to you. It's called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which kind of um, sounds like pretty heavy, but it's really interesting. Sometimes I feel like I I, I want to understand what's happened in the past to, to help me think about how we do things in the future. And understanding how a capitalist society emerged, what the benefits of that are, what the disadvantages are, where it all came from. So the historical connotations are important to me. Um, Sapiens is one of my favorite books as well, as it relates to that. You know, the history of mankind, that answers a lot of questions and it begs a lot of questions as well. Um, So that's a book I really recommend. But I'm not a business book person and then you can't beat a Vogue magazine or something like that you know um, British Vogue that is I have to get British Vogue from my local Barnes and Noble again you use books for context and I think that's a really good thing for people to to, to appreciate mm-hmm. favorite restaurant or bar to spend a lovely relaxing afternoon in is there is there a particular favorite horn over the years that you go back to Oh my God, Claridge's. There's, there's two, right? Claridge's, eating there, hanging out in the bar there, having breakfast there. I mean, I could live at Claridge's. There's no question about that. I just love everything about it. And it's it, it's so stylish as well. Um, I like to clip-clop across the um, checkered floor in my heels. Not that I've been wearing heels for the past 12 months. That's something else I'm looking forward to. So Claridge's for sure. And then the other is the Ivy. I'm actually a member of the Ivy Club in London. So I frequently head upstairs, fantastic bar um, and another little restaurant. But I, I just love the ivy i love the classics right you can have all these fusion restaurants and all this fancy you know let's try something different restaurants but at the end of the day those are the ones i love thank you so much for sharing your journey and leadership learns with us today i'm sure there's lots that's resonating with listeners and like me they'll be taking away some really valuable ideas thank you everyone for listening if you enjoyed the episode please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network speak to you again soon 